Here we go then, folks. Back in for episode 1414 this time of the Silly Goose Gang podcast. And joining us tonight is, I've thought long and hard about this intro, Andy, for the last couple of days. And I think I'm going to have to go with Renaissance man, Andy Torbett. <laughs> Um, looking, looking at your list of accolades, I put, if I miss anything, shout them out. But we've got 10 years in the British Army in the Parachute Regiment, uh, Cave Diver, Technical Diver, Sky Diver, Speed Sky Diving, which we'll definitely have to come back on, <laughs> Qualified Climber and Expedition Leader, Degree in Zoology, Diploma in Nautical Archaeology, Working Towards a Master's in Archaeology, You've done 22 TV series, 250 articles, and one book, Andy Torbett's Extreme Adventures, which I was lucky enough to get a signed copy of a couple of years back. Thank you very much for that, Andy. Uh, presenter of Fully Charged, have I missed anything? No, the, I, the God knows. Uh, the only thing I'd say is, um, whereas the forces, it wasn't the parachute regiment, I was a paratrooper, but I was, uh, oh, right, okay. I, was, I, was sorry, I was bomb disposal, so I was airborne commando oh, SF bomb disposal with high research, all that sort of stuff. Um, apart of, yeah, I mean, I, I like that that because people I get asked a lot. So, you know, people say, you know, what do you do for a living? Or if you do a podcast, because I've done quite a few podcasts over the lockdown. You know, um, yeah. they've said, uh, you know, how would you describe yourself? It's like I don't know because I do a lot of different so, stuff to pay the mortgage. So you know, it's, it's it's quite it's quite weird when somebody says to describe yourself. That's kind of weird. That's you know you let somebody you let somebody yeah. introduce you like that. And you because you wouldn't go. You know, I'm Andy Torbert. I am this. I do this. I do that. It's a bit. It's a bit weird. You let other people do that. Even folks, say, so what do you do for a living? You're like, well, what I physically get paid for and what I because like obviously, effectively writing articles, but I'm not a journalist. I wrote a book. I'm not an author. You know, I do some talks. I'm not a proper public speaker. I do a lot of TV stuff, but I wouldn't call myself a proper presenter in the kind of, you know, proper BBC presenter. And then uh, all those things are based on the fact that I do cave diving and free diving and uh, rock climbing and skydiving. And that. So it's probably, but then sometimes I'll do stuff where I'm skydiving, but talking about peregrine falcons. So that's my zoology. So it's a mix, but actually, I never thought. But I like I like the open line because I keep saying to people, you know, these days, especially with like Instagram accounts or or TV personas, whatever you want to call it, it's all about the brand. What's your brand? What are you? Are you the yeah. wildlife guy or are you the survival guy? Like all of us are more than one thing, you know. Yeah. I I you know you can you can be a climber and a skydiver and a diver, and yeah. you can be into you can be into wildlife and technology. Like fully charged is a good example which folk don't know because it's, it's, it's a YouTube channel that does electric vehicles and, and sustainable energy and sort of green, green issues. But it's run by, for those of a certain age, it's run by Robert Llewellyn, who you'll probably know best mm. from either, either Scrap Heap Challenge or Crichton from Crichton. Red Dwarf. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, you like, you get guys like him, like, you know, you can be into like wildlife and nature and cutting edge technology. They don't have to be. So, um, yeah, race once, Mark. Quite, I quite like. I'll, I'll take that one. That's thanks very much. You can have that. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna change my Instagram profile now. Hey! <laughs> you get on business cards. Andy yeah. Torbert, race once, Mark. Genuinely, when I like ten years ago, I got business cards printed. That's the first time I've done it. But I just, I, you know, I put on there my name, my email address, and my telephone number, and that was it. Because I thought I don't I have no idea. Because at the time, you know, I was doing this stuff, but I was still supporting myself and doing other work, like the old ex forces work. Um, you know, in West Africa and the Middle East and, and a bit of commercial diving as well and that sort of stuff. So I was kind of like, 
I'll kind of I'll kind of do what's going. You know what I mean? You, you've got to be careful in this game not to just just do one thing because yeah. you know jobs in the adventure world or the media they they peak and trough. You know you've got you've got good times and bad times. You've got to ride the, the uh, ride the the bad times. Um, which is how Bond came along to be honest. Because I, I don't know if you. I, I don't. I actually forgot. I actually scribbled it down. I think and forgot to mention that you've done stunt work for James Bond films as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. That just was, that just was... to add to the cooler. Right. Just to add to, in case anyone didn't think you were already cool as. We'll I'll, just go in the even... fact that you stunted in James Bond. <laughs> if you could, if you could, if you could just finish all this off and find a cure for cancer and COVID nineteen and just call it quits. You know what are you waiting on? Well, because <laughs> Yeah, like another guy, girl. Actually, the closest thing I've done that I, I think the closest thing I think I've done, although James Bond was quite because I'm a big Bond fan, but um, I did the voice for Action Man a few years ago. For the, um, so for, oh, Action, right. for Action Man's 50th anniversary, oh. the BBC made this little stop. At, well, it was a film, but it was a sort of semi. It was a stop animation film. So Action Man the toy went out into the real world to find out where he came from, like 50 years or that. Anyway, and. Um, they asked me to because it was for the one shows. I do stuff for the one shows. They said, "Oh, would, would you?" We thought you you be the guy to, to voice it over. And I was like, "So, but we're we're a, we're a bit short of time. We'd be free in the next. Yes, I'm free. Well, you know, no, no matter what's on, I'll no matter where you're doing it, I'll come to you I'll and do I'll it. do the voiceover. And um, afterwards, because obviously, you know, it's 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 a national program, and there's quite a few people, you know, coming. Um, I. I, I didn't know Action Man spoke with a Scottish accent, and I was like, "Well, well, minded." So, you know, Action Man doesn't speak the Scottish accent. Every Action Man in Scotland speaks a Scottish accent. I guarantee you. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, that's tremendous. Aye, that might be Action Man. Probably is on par, if not maybe cooler than James Bond. I would agree on that one. Well, I, I, cool. I kind of got to effectively play Action Man as opposed to I was never actually, you know. Daniel Craig clearly would have something to say if I'd been. Do you mind if I just do this? Uh, no, uh, you know what I mean. Now the thing, the question is, is when you're working out in this uh, this fabulous looking gym that you've got, do you pretend that you are Action Man? <laughs> no, uh, I I usually exact opposite. Training for me is all about trying to not hurt myself anymore, any worse than I already yeah. am. Because I mean, from you know, ten years in the forces doing what I did, like you know. From the up. military dive stuff, the stuff in the Marines, the paracourse, SF stuff, you know, I've got my knees are shot away, I've got bolts in my shin, I've got two tears in my shoulders permanent, I've broke my back when I was 20, not two, like what year was it? I don't know. Anyway, early 20s. Um, so, you know, I'm a bit I'm a bit banged up. So, you know, I'm, I'm training now and a lot of it is about almost conservation you know occasionally you have a time you get the gym and you smash it but most times what you're actually trying to do is still be able to operate tomorrow you know um well, well we've had these conversations before for a couple of guys that's been on here before and we are all you know getting older so one of the things that we always say is you know if, if you go and do a gym set you know if you go and do a squat in a, a squat session or a deadlift session whatever you're doing and and you do so much that you can't be functional the next day then the session's pretty stupid. You, you, you've kind of wasted your time. You know, if you can't if you can't do anything the next day because your legs are so sore. Yeah, it's, 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 it's all about. Yeah. So for me, it's all about consistency. You know, you're you're better off putting in eighty percent effort seven days a week. Actually, yeah. you know, eighty percent effort over the next six months. 
then 100 percent effort every day over the next three weeks, and then you then you get injured and you're off yeah. the next three weeks. So you yeah, yeah. And again with myself because I I mean less than a bit often. You know, you get a phone call and go, oh, can you go and film this tomorrow? Or can you and you you, yeah. you don't always know what's happening. So you don't want to leave the gym and be unable to go and like do so many pull ups that that tomorrow you can't climb and then you're supposed to do a climbing yeah. shoot. I say we're doing stunts because we were on stunts. We had a gym set up in the stunt shed at Pinewood, and everyone trained because it's all very motivated, fit uh, men and women. But you also had to think about what you were doing that day. And yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. well, I, I can't smash it because I'm not being paid to smash at the gym. I'm being paid to turn up set and do the job they're paying me to do, and that's that's the priority. Um, so. So yeah. then, do you do? Are you doing? Do you do a lot of um, kind of kind of mobility work and stuff then, Andy, to keep yourself yeah. kind of limber yeah. and loose? Yeah, a lot of mobility. Yeah, stuff. yeah, more and more these these days. You know, definitely how how I train, how I recover, how I eat is different now to when I was in my twenties. Uh, a yeah. because I was in the forces and nothing. Like, in the forces, you eat what you're given. You 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 train how you're told to train, and you drink a great deal of alcohol. Um, uh, except they say, except you're on tour, you know, you go to a rat for six months, you don't drink a drop for six months, so that's that's pretty good. Um, and you can work on your tan, at least from the elbows down and the neck up. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've become far more appreciative in the last year or two of um, because I train for for like performance or at least you know for capability, you know, in the real world, so it's it's it's. Yeah. It's that kind of fitness rather than run aesthetics. Although I always tell people, if you train for aesthetics, often what happens is you look good, but you can't do much. If you train yeah, for yeah. performance, you can you tend to can do a lot, and you usually look pretty fit as well. Because I mean, you don't find many genuinely fit, capable people who don't look fit and capable. You know, mm. I mean, Usain Bolt doesn't train for aesthetics, but that guy yeah. is ripped and massive. You know, that's just yeah, that's yeah. How it's, some, some, yeah it's a byproduct of doing that work. Yeah. So yeah. how do you? Um, so is, is there any difference in doing um, the way you train, or you know, kind of gym work? Is there any difference in, in general, kind of outside, or you know, towards diving? Do you do anything different for diving or anything? Sorry for lung capacity, like, you know, for, for any of that kind of stuff. Is there any difference? No, no. I mean, diving is a pretty much psychological sport. Uh, as far as once you're underwater, um, I mean, being being fit and healthy helps your survival chances as far as your your ability to deal with. Um, you know, de- decompression and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, you know, being unfit and carrying too much body fat does have risks for pulmonary edemas and and um, immersion pulmonary edema and decompression. So some of these, uh, this is probably nonsense the most folk, but some of these diving related kind of issues that can happen. Um, but it's not it's not that physical a sport once you're underwater. It's all about skills mm. and sort of psychology. Especially cave diving is very psychological based. That said, some cave diving, especially where you're having to trek into the mountains to find the caves, or do a lot of dry caving, which is humping dive, which always uh, okay. through dry caves up and down ropes. That's physical. I mean, the UK, a place like Florida or Mexico, you can drive up in your pickup truck to a, a cave, which is basically a pool in the in the jungle floor. You can just kit, put your kit on, you know, in the back of your truck and just step out straight into the water. So. You can be a fat cave diver, frankly, if in Florida. Um, in the UK, all the caves in the UK um, are a bit of a bit of a yomp from the nearest kind of car park, and often require a lot of dry caving to get to bits of it. So, you know, you don't find many one, unfit 
it's cave divers. It's, um, it's one of the things cave diving. Just looking at it, I'm just in fact most of the things that you do, are things that terrify me. So yeah, cave diving and, and and skydiving and all this kind of stuff is. What's quite funny is I've had um, I've had times where I've been climbing on rows and moan, and you know when you're in the you know in a hell of the, you know the weather starts turning, it gets quite misty and foggy and it gets a bit eerie. I've seen me thinking about how I'm going to fight off a big cat. <laughs> if a big cat, a pod, you know when you start getting yeah, a bit yeah. it's yeah. You go, how, how would I fight off a big cat? I'm thinking about that. But somebody said to me, would you like to go and dive in a cave? I'd be like, no, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not jumping out of a plane either. But I'll fight a big cat. I'll think about how I'm going to do it. But jumping out of a plane yeah. or going in a cave, no way. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about it in the last episode, me and Chris, because I used to sky, um, I used to scuba dive and surf and free dive back when I was a little bit younger, Andy. And we were talking, and Chris was like, "Nope, because there's things in the sea that touch it, and we don't like that." Well, I think cave diving, as Chris was saying, that's that must be a different level. I just saying, almost the psychological preparation over the physical. Yeah, it's definitely it's both psychological and it's it's basically risk management, you know, um, and. It's no more dangerous than anything else. Oh, well, that's not true. It's, it's, well, I think it starts off. I mean, it's it's horrendously dangerous at the start, but the whole point is then to make it safe. So, it's a bit also it's like crossing the road. Crossing the road is that safe or dangerous? Well, it depends on how you do it. You know, if you do mm. it at night in the rain, your hands and knees, with your eyes closed, dressed as a ninja, you're gonna get hit by a bus. If you do it in the daylight with a high vis vest, you know, you look both ways, green cross code, you're gonna be absolutely fine. In cave diving is the same. Like I go cave diving all the time, my mates, and we don't think, "Oh my God, we could die." No, we don't do that at all. We obviously we we you know this is where paranoia and cautious being cautious counts. Like I you know I am not mm. an adrenaline junkie. I am not. I've not got a death wish. I you know I'm not a maniac. I'm, I'm paranoia is your friend. Because um, what we'll do is we like like you're saying there about what would I do if a big cat attacked? Like. That's the same thing I do because I do it at home. You know, sat at home where I mug a tea in my pants and go right. Let's cave dive right. So let's see what could what's all the things that could possibly go wrong. And you let your imagination run wild and you list them all down and you go right. Now, can I prevent? Can I guarantee any of them happening? And the, most of the chat answers no. You don't have any guarantees. Okay. So what can I do to reduce the risks to the minimal? Right. You get that point. And then you say right. Am I now happy with that risk? And it kind of depends. If it's something that maybe ends up you stubbing your toe, that's ah, fine. If it ends up killing you, then you're like, no, even if it's a million to one, I'm not happy. So what you then do is you assume that's going to happen and you mm. have a plan in place. So the thing I use in my uh, up for underwater is called a rebreather. It's, it's not normal scuba gear. It basically recycles one breath. So you can, you can die for like hours and hours and hours and hours at any depth. It's the same technology they use for, for doing spacewalks, the astronauts. Um, right, okay. And and it's never failed. I've, I've used loads of different systems, and in the last ten years, not one single failure. And yet, I assume it will fail every single time I dive, and I carry backup systems to to change onto. Because should it fail, I'm dead. Because that is the one thing about cave diving over, say, climbing or even skydiving, is that you know you can you can you can scuff your toe, twist an ankle, break a leg, break your back, be in a coma, die. In climbing a skydiving, you know, there's, there's, things can go wrong, and it's a bit of a, there's an uphill graduation of how bad it can go. With cave diving, no one gets injured. Cave diving either goes fine and you're fine, it goes badly, but you fix it and it, you're fine, 
or it goes badly, you don't fix it and you're dead. It's pretty binary, cave diving. So, <laughs> um, which is why you want to say, you want to go, right, can I guarantee this bad thing's not going to go wrong? No, okay. So I'll put things in place. And, you know, we, like, most divers dive their torch. A cave diver dives their torch and then a backup torch. And then at least a backup, backup torch. Normally, we've got, like, five torches we dive with, you know, because <laughs> you don't want to be blind underwater. So, mm. um, and we've got a very good, like... Cave diving is becoming incredibly safe. Like the people who are doing it, most cave divers that have died, or no, most divers that have died in a cave in the last ten years have not been cave divers. The people who had no qualifications or experience, or the right kit, and shouldn't have been in there in the first place. Yeah, um, but that's, that's like um, a lot of guys who you know just just before lockdown, with some tourists, I believe, killed on uh, on just coming down Nevis. Um, yeah. or, or where they killed them, they just rescued. I think they were just I think they were just rescued actually, but they had on just normal trainers. Nothing with them, no kit, nothing. Um, and those are the people, like you're saying, you know, cave diving that, that get hurt. Those are the people that cause cause the the issues. Um, it's sort of like I think I believe Everest Everest is now the same as well. You know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. kind of rich Americans and Chinese people, and and they're just throwing money at things to try and get, and they're in no condition to go up Everest. And that's you know, people are now getting hurt. It happens every year in Scotland. Every year, I mean, the the mountain rescue guys in Scotland are flat out, and it's 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 very seldom. Mountaineers or climbers that are rescued from Ben Nevis, yeah. like you know, it's normally tourists who shouldn't have been there, you know. And the problem is, that I've done it. I've I've walked off Ben Nevis uh, in like uh, end of February, and it was a whiteout at the top. There's a guy I met who he was a, he got lost. He went up there. He was used to the Alps. So he used to good calm weather, and he got up there. He didn't get a map or a compass. This is obviously a lot. This is like twenty years ago, uh, when people still use maps and compasses, and um. So he's an experienced mountaineer, but he he always done it in the Alps, where if you got good weather, you're good weather for days and days and days. Unlike Scotland, as we know. Yes. So anyway, I've got him picked him up. We went, we're, we're going down. But the problem is, you get to some one point down the old pony track, and uh, yeah, yeah. and um, it, it gets really. It was quite a nice day down below. So you'd folk coming up in trainers and shorts, you know, and I'm there like you know, some Gore-Tex crampon strapped to the top of my, my my rucksack, my, my ice sack, just. It, Kind of, and they're looking at me like I'm, you know, just come up from outer space. It's going, guys, you, you won't. It, actually, luckily, it's fine because they won't get up there because it was so icy. You, you wouldn't have got up yeah, there yeah. crampons on. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, that's yeah, lack of preparedness. We had um, there's actually a video came up on Facebook Memories. I think it was uh, yes, it must have been the 16th, so it'd been Saturday. Um, and it was uh, you know, we had went up uh, five years ago up uh, Ben Nevis it was for somebody stag do, and uh, so that was 16th of May. And I've, I've got a video from the top, and it is wild, absolutely wild, snowing really heavily. Ice. We never made it to the top because we got to the stage where you're on a sheet and you go, I don't know what's underneath this ice, so let's just call it and, and go back down. But it's super easy for people just to go, we'll just keep going. I think we'll be. It's only a Munro. I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's about is it thirteen hundred meters roughly, give or take thirteen hundred. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And you lose you lose roughly a degree of temperature for every hundred meters you go up. So you're at, you're down in Glen Nevis. Oh, it's quite a nice day. Or it's it's going to say sixteen degrees Celsius. Oh, once I start walking, I get a bit of heat. Oh, you know, but that means on the top, it's getting close to, to zero. You think? Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. not including wind chill. It's like you know, I've seen ninety mile an hour winds at the top of Ben Nevis. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't be wrong. I've been up, I've been up there one day with my mum. It's the only day I ever had a day where it's clear. Summer's day. We got up there. We left like two in the morning. It's got for sunrise, and you can see forever. 
it was a clear day. I've, you know, I've only ever had that once. See forever, and it was be- you know, a breath of wind. It was beautiful, but mm. I was like, Jesus, these are this is this is once in a lifetime. Yeah. Um, it's funny because we're talking about that. We're talking about that on Urun. Um, yes, to be actually sorry, with Johnny on Ali, and we're talking about this. And you know, I've done the Ring of Steel. Have you have you done the Ring of Steel, Andy? No, 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 I know it, but no. Yeah, and, yeah. And I got we got to the top. It was a beautiful day, and um, it was in a race. So I, I got to the top. I can't remember the last Monroe, and the sun was coming down, just coming down, uh, and I've never seen anything like it in my life. I took a, you know, a panoramic picture, and it's absolutely unbelievable. Just coming down, you see all the tops, and it's just beautiful. If if you don't mind a little, a little very, very, very low level technical climbing but if you're all right to like like for those who climb it would be moderates and vdis and one, one half severe and that's it but the cooling ridge i did the cooling ridge in a day a few years ago uh yeah. up in sky that is the most spectacular mountain scenery i've seen and i i, I waited and waited and waited until i got a day that was completely clear. Well, uh, so july bright sunshine i mean baking hot jesus but you know i could see the last peak from the first when i set off at like five in the morning and, and yeah it, it's it's, it is like being in the Alps. It's how, it it's seems amazing. like um, I, I, I do basically what you do, Andy. I do when I, I usually go try and go to Sky once a year. I just leave on a Sunday morning at three o'clock in the morning, try and get up there for sorry eight o'clock, climb on my own, come home. But I always look at the. I, I sort of you know usually around about this time and look at the weather forecast and say when are we going to get a good weekend? And you get a Saturday or a Sunday that's gorgeous. Go that's the day I'm going. And um, but yeah, I, if I'm going to you know a general Monroe, I'll go either sunrise or sunset and try and get you know one or the other yeah. on the right day. Well, I was it's unbelievable. I was my start time was driven by uh, I knew I had to get up above the midgey line before the midges came out. Genuinely, I was like, <laughs> right, I'm gonna leave. I'll leave. I'll leave the car at the Glen Brittle campsite car park at like I think it was yeah, two yeah. or half two in the morning. I thought, right, it's not about when I get to the first peak to start. It's about when I know that roughly that's the, the midges won't be much. The ten, the ten. Yeah. There's an altitude roughly. You won't get much midges. So I was like, I want to be up above that altitude before sort of five in the morning before sunrise because I don't. Oh, midges, man, do me absolutely. <laughs> so what? Um, what I, I did. Um, like yeah, I did, Jesus. Um, <laughs> I did school Alistair and you start at um, Glen Biddle Car Park at the little camp here as well. So yeah. I don't have to do the the cool and midges. I'll have to go the next time I got to do that because I just did school Alistair, nipped into the ferry pool, sort of run around there. And then go back down the road. So the next time I'll I'll check out Cooling Ridge. So it's, it's a big day, but it's, it's cracking. You know, it's a real sense of achievement. It's probably my second best sort of climbing mountain day out. To be honest, uh, yeah. yeah, I've had. So yeah. Yeah. Fairy pools is a touchy subject in our house because we went up to Sky two years ago as a family. I've got three kids and uh, two teenage boys, and at, at the time, an eight-year-old daughter. She's now ten. And we decided we'd go and see the fairy pools. And we were staying in a, a Spin Bridge um, oh, and yeah. we drove across, parked up in the car park. Uh, and as always, it started raining in the, the interim period and like washing down the rain as it does. So we'll jump out of the car and it's like, fine, we've all got our jackets, opened the boot of the car. I pull out my jacket, pull out the wife's jacket, Aaron's, Logan's. Where's Anya's jacket? Anya's face just dropped. I put it down as we were coming out the the lodge and I've left it and honestly my wife lost the plot she'll listen to us and she'll be tough and absolutely you know that moment where you just go kids just get back in the car for your own safety and she drove off sky cursing and swearing all the way with me staring straight forward the three kids in the back or the two boys say nothing and you sat in the middle sobbing and howling 
and just no one talking for about the first 40 minutes because we'd never been up to the ferry pool before and we never ever got to see it. It was just typical Scottish yeah. weather turning us. <laughs> if you have Honestly, to... Um, She's never lived it down to this day, yeah? Ferry, the ferry pools have to be done it's super early because it gets crazy with tourists if you go to the yeah. ferry pools. You, you, time you get to nine o'clock in the morning, it's, you can't get in the car park. So, um, so I, I, the, one of the things I wanted to from your intro, Andy, was um, archaeology stuff. I've always, when I was at school, that's one of the things that I, I, I was fascinated by history at high school. Um, and archaeology was something I actually kind of thought about pursuing that at one point, but then I realised I went to work and I was lazy, so I didn't do it. Um, but yeah, what, so what, what's, what kind of area are you, what, what you, is there like a period that, are, that you're kind of looking to get into? Or? You know, all sorts. So I did, I did, when I was at uni, I went to uni for my the Forces and, and I, uh, I did, first couple of years, I actually did zoology and archaeology and then you had to specialise, you had to basically choose a proper subject, you couldn't do them both, so I went with zoology and then um, I've also, you know, I've, I've Again, let's say, you know, you get your academic specialists, but every, like all the TV presenters who are wildlife guys, they've, all, they've also got other subjects they're interested in. You know, very mm. few people are just like, I, I only want to learn about one thing. So, um, and I'd done some work for some universities years ago as the dive supervisor on archaeology digs in Scotland and in Greece and places like that. Um, yeah. And it's really a lot. And then so... I did a TV BBC series um, up in Orkney, it's all about archaeology. So it was okay. myself, Shinny, uh, Neil Oliver, Chris Packham. And um, when I was there, as I usually am, I was the community you know, adventure blokes. So I was doing climbing stuff and diving and sea kayaking. But, um, you know, I, I get it quick because they were going, oh, we've got a script for you here just so you can describe this thing. I was like, oh, I don't need it. You know, this is this is the, you know, the bringing broadcasts, blah, blah, blah. And the Neil thing, and like, oh. If you'd been doing some studying, so now we covered this like in my university course, and that kind of re- kind of inspired. Oh, I should really. So it's. So I start. I thought if I'm gonna if I'm gonna like go and do a course in archaeology, I might as well, you know, do a proper course and get a qualification out of it. So, uh, you know, there wasn't any. I'm doing it for myself. There wasn't any kind of career step or uh, any agenda. It was just. Mm. To be fair, it's it's been more harder work and more work than I thought it would be, but you know, I suppose it's a master's, but um it's been interesting if if, if struggling at times. But um kind of out of the habit of of, of, of working but again it's been good because it's 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 made me kind of almost relearn how to actually I can learn how to study how to think again. Mm. Um but yeah, so it's it's yeah. but it's as far as areas anything. I mean I, what what I like doing is and I've done it in the past for projects is using the skills I've got to, to and not just for archaeology, I've done it for, for biological science, the starvation for, for geology stuff is is to, you know, use the cave diving and the deep technical divers or the climbing stuff to go and reach places that maybe the normal academics can't get to. So you can go oh, there, yeah. you can bring back the data for them to for them to study because, you know, if, if, there's, a, if there's a shipwreck at 120 metres, there's not that many archaeologists that can dive at 120 metres or, um, you know, maybe zoologists who are willing to dive deep into caves to, to do some sampling so you can do that for them so i do enjoy enjoy that because you know i'm a far better cave diver than i am an academic and will ever be <laughs> sounds like uh sound, that sounds like a tv program to me <laughs> oh i've pitched it i've pitched it many 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 times well well you'll have one viewer i'd love to watch that i was gonna say two viewers two viewers, <laughs> two viewers. so would aaron I think, aaron's I think working my to mom... do archaeology so 
Well, there's three and my mum was four, so we've got four and I'll put it again. Four um, years. Yeah, God, like TV is, TV is um, you know, I reckon uh, for every hundred ideas you pitch and it'll take you, you know, you get, you get one hit. I mean, I did a kids series, it was really successful, very, did very, very well. And if, I was like, oh my God, it was amazing. That took me eight years to get to get made, like to get good, good. to make it. Uh, so then, yeah. this kind of segues nicely into into the um, the get charged um, YouTube thing. Is there no hmm. way you could kind of start looking at doing that? You know that kind of thing on because YouTube now is I basically watch YouTube. That's pretty yeah. much what I watch yeah. now. Uh, there's so much content and, and good content. Yeah, the funny thing is now, so fully charged uh, is it's the biggest kind of electric vehicle sustainable energy that you know thing on YouTube, um, and it's, it's a huge thing in the, in the states. Actually, huge in the states, mm. and um, you know, I'm a bit old school, and if you'd asked me six months ago, I'd obviously you know rank the BBC over YouTube. That's not the case at all, and actually, I should know better because um, I don't watch tv anymore like i've got apple tv so i go and i watch like a series but i might watch that series through the bbc app or the netflix app or the amazon app or the youtube app it's kind of irrelevant these are and again you speak to like you know actually more not mates but mates kids who are like 18 19 20 yeah, they just watch YouTube now. They don't really watch the BBC, yeah. and if they do, they, they they don't see a difference between BBC because they, they, they see the BBC as an app. The iPlayer is an app because they don't they don't you know BBC One. They don't know what BBC One is. You go you, if you want to watch a TV series, yeah. you go you look for that TV series on the iPlayer. Whether it was on BBC One or Two is irrelevant to them. So they see you know a, a successful YouTube channel, uh, the same way you would see a successful BBC series. You just watch it in two mm. different apps. Um, yeah. You know, and they've and they've got and and what I like about it, I've got to say, I really do like. One is the fact that you know there is a genuine kind of positive purpose behind it. They are trying to. It's not just about the technology; it's about why the why we should be using this technology. I.e., we're trying to make the world a better place. We're trying to clean the world up. And having two small kids, that's becoming more and more important. You know, that even when I was doing a lot of zoology and ecology and conservation stuff, it's still become become more of an issue now. Because and it's not since I had kids; it's since my kids. They're three and five now, and I'm starting to do a lot more with them that you can actually kind of, you know, yeah, they're a bit more interesting now they're older. And I kind of realized that, frankly, the world is not in a great state. And when they are 30 years old and I'm 60, they'll turn around to me and be like, You must have known what you were doing. You must have known. Why didn't you do something? And I want to have an answer. I want to go, Well, hang on a second. Like, you know, I, this is what I was trying, I can't answer for the world. But, yeah. but this is what I was trying to do because I think so I'm I'm holding I'm using them to hold myself account to my actions today because I think they will quite rightfully it, it be interrogating my actions when you know when they're my age and as right they should be so um, and the other good thing about it is Robert and Dan Robert who runs or owns the, the kind of channel the company and Dan who who's the big head producer if you will for the for the channel if I've got an idea I phone up Dan and say mate I've got an idea and Dan says yes or no that's it whereas like with bbc it can take years of various levels of yeah, red tape yeah. And yes no. yeah. it's just nice you get a, you get a mad idea you go mate i've got an idea let's let's do this he's like okay yeah cool. it's on the board and it's on the board so uh, that's nice yeah get out right. of direct contact and it's and it is very true what you're saying because i've got as you're saying i've got teenage sons and all they watch exclusively is i need my 10 year old daughter now is youtube and they don't think it's 
it's, well, it's, it's YouTube like, and inverted commas, like you're saying, you know, I'm, I think we're all about roughly ages with each other. Um, yeah. And I used to watch, think of YouTube as it was silly videos of people falling over and viral yeah. clips and do you know what I mean? Whereas now it is, yeah. there's, there's, as you were saying, Chris, yeah. some cracking content out there, um, well, n- not least this podcast. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I mean, the, 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 the production levels on, on Fully Charged are higher than, than the one show. To be honest, they are. They, they, mm. so, um, and yeah, you know, again, I, I used to think of YouTube as the place where people put GoPro clips, which, to be fair, originally it it was mostly. It was, like, mostly yeah, 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 it was. 100%. Um, but but now, you know, fully charged is is a TV company. It's a TV production company who's that, that are making programs for their own channel. So you yeah. know, normally how it works with the BBC, for example, you've got a, a, a production company will make a program. For the BBC, you know, the BBC makes some in house, but, but not that much anymore. But yes, you've got this, you know, this this television production company who exclusively make content for a channel that they just happen to also own as well. You know, um, yeah. If you, so, if you uh, think about if you, if if you think about the idea of just um, you know when we were kids and you used to if there's a program you you know just um, you know but it's you know, still on. But you know we used to I used to love watching Top Gear from way back in the day. But you have to sit and go, right, okay, it's on at 8 o'clock on a Sunday. They have to be in the house at 8 o'clock. That, that idea now to, you know, a 16-year-old kid seems stupid. Like, what, why? Well, you have to be in the house. Like, when it's on to, you know, why don't I just go and watch it when I want to watch it? Like, the idea seems really, like, so old-fashioned now. It's, it's kind of funny um, compared to YouTube, which is just, yeah. I'll watch it then. Believe me, you know. I, yeah. I, see, I've, I've, I've not... Like my my TV's not connected in aerial. Like I've not watched TV. No, as we no, know I, it. I don't have an aerial. I don't right. have an aerial. I watch everything via Apple. Yeah, yeah, everything's on Apple TV for me. Everything. I mean, even even um, I've not watched it yet. But the Disney Disney Plus that this TV series called The Mandalorian, which did very well. I haven't watched it yet. But when I thought, oh, I might I might look at that. So um, then I realized, oh, it's, it's put they put an episode out every week. I was like, oh well. You know, bollocks to that. I'm, I'll uh, I'll wait until it's all been shown. Then I'll because you know, even I become so used to. If I watch a TV series, I want to watch episode one, two, three. Then if I want to watch four, or what you know, whatever, I'll watch it on my terms. And um, but funnily enough, my my oldest, which is probably last year actually when he would have been about four to be fair. Um, I was telling about He Man, and he I said, he was oh I really loved to watch He Man, so I was like oh uh, okay not in a It'll be on YouTube because everything's on YouTube. And we found it on YouTube, all all clips of He-Man. Um, so we press play, and after the start, there's a five-minute, you know, the advert before you can skip it. And he said, this is not He-Man, Dad. I said, no, no, I said, this is this is an advert. And he said, what's an advert? <laughs> <laughs> because he watched stuff on Amazon Prime, on Netflix, or on BBC iPlayer, you know, for yeah. like the last year or two, when we started watching telly, I don't know. But obviously, he, he, so he'd never seen an advert. And if he had not shown him YouTube, he could have gone his entire life without ever watching an advert. You, you know, that seems crazy. Like, That's hilarious. Yeah, it's like you, <laughs> yeah, you're hilarious. right. You're not, you're not really, you know, you know. Again, even for me, YouTube's probably the only time I see advertising because because with Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or iPlayer, it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the last. I don't know the last time I watched. You know, Channel One to Four. I don't. Not something yeah, I ever watched. Now you you just get things on YouTube. Yeah, it's changed so much. It's funny you're talking about Mandalorian and them dropping an episode a week because I've just been, I've watched Mandalorian because I'm a big Star Wars fan, much to Chris's disgust. 
<laughs> and uh, I've just been watching the uh, Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. Oh yeah, yeah. And they dropped that two episodes a week, and I actually liked that because it felt nostalgic to when I watched basketball in the nineties. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm so used yeah, to like, yeah. say, binge watching all twenty-four episodes appear at once. Yeah. And you can do six episodes, take a break, but that was kind of nice to have to wait, like get to the end of the second episode and be like, "Oh man, I need to wait a week." It, it, it was almost mm. like that nineties feel, but I appreciate yeah, yeah. it. A nostalgia point of view was quite, it was quite nice in a roundabout way. Yeah. But you, you see, even even us, we're we're behind, but we're we're not used to it. But the kids that come up now, my kids, and you know, even sixteen-year-olds, the idea of 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 being out of it breaks or not being able to pause TV, you know, or <laughs> you know, not yeah. getting like box sets at once, is just, and you can see that actually in productions, you know, because um, with the value of, I mean, TV series were always like dirt cheap compared to movies. Not anymore, you know. Um, the Mandalorian, Witcher, maybe that's one, but the Marvel, some of the Marvel TV series that kind of come out, they've commissioned a, a Lord of the Rings TV series. I think it's for Netflix or Amazon. Anyway, 10, epi- 10 one hour episodes filmed in New Zealand, 10 one hour episodes, a £1 billion budget. It's a £100 million budget per episode. That's Jeez. like a. Oh yeah, that's, a, that's the sort of it's on the back of Game of Thrones during the success of Game of Thrones, but that's the sort of level that inverted commas TV, i.e. Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Disney have now gone to that. Again, TV is on a par with, with movies, and that's why you get so many Hollywood A-listers who are doing tele programs now. You know, um, mm. so it's somebody that somebody that does sort of you know still sort of terrestrial TV stuff. Do you think? There's like a long term. Do you think that's still a long term thing that there will be, you know, twenty years time? Will we still be making programs for BBC One, BBC Two? Or, you know, is that something that you think will still happen? Or mm, I, I think long term you'll find that the the BBC becomes an app. Like, so you'll get, you know, the iPlayer will be like YouTube or Prime Plus or Disney mm. Plus. You know, so so you'll go to you'll go to the iPlayer and you'll search for dramas and they'll give you the dramas rather than try to find BBC One. Which, I mean, they, they may well still probably have a a live element, but you'll go to a live element, you'll go to the iPlayer and you'll click on live and see what's happening. They might have like six channels. I mean, like you the Olympics. Remember the Olympics? You could do the Red Bulls yeah. thing. And you, yeah, you watch, like, yeah. There's like five different sports you could watch live because a lot of stuff going on at the Olympics at once. There's like, you know, the horse riding in one place, but then there's the gymnastics in another place. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, the, the days of the days of BBC One to I mean, BBC Three is doing really well, and it's been online for years now. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, so no, I think, I think the BBC will still exist; it'll still do stuff, but I think it 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 won't be terrestrial anymore. It'll be. It'll have to change basically. It'll have it's to, yeah, have it'll to change. Have it'll be left left miles behind. Well, be, the classic uh, example. Be... We're to- the classic example is we're talking Netflix. Now we're all old enough to remember Blockbuster. We'll, most of us <laughs> we're all old enough to remember the the TV show with Bob Holness Blockbuster. But I'm talking about oh, the, yes. the DVD and VHS. Yeah, yeah. Bob, 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 but, you know, you think of Blockbuster, how many of us, when we were growing up, used to love going on a Friday night to get our DVD VHS, even if we're going proper VHS. old school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aye. Always Very rewind, funny. don't forget to rewind. That, but that we would never think, and Blockbuster themselves, Blockbuster themselves had the chance to buy out Netflix. Netflix needed seed money, offered up 50% of the company and offered to change the name. 
And the chief exec of Blockbuster said, nah, there's no future in streaming TV. <laughs> hindsight, hindsight, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? But, but he's taking himself now. Um, I mean, I. But then again, I, because I'm not technologically that 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 au fait. Um, if somebody had pitched Netflix to me even the year before it came out, I'd be like, "How the hell does that work?" Because because it yeah. is wizardry. I mean, it is wizardry. The internet is wizardry. Uh, right now, you've got three blokes sat in like, hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. But we, I could be, I could be sat in Sydney, Australia, right now. And yet we are, we are mm. video conferencing, and we could be thought to be broadcasting live to the world. And you're like, but where, where is, is how, how, how does that work? How does the signal get crunched into little numbers and it goes in a wire? It's, it is wizardry, right? It's beyond. I just don't I hope get that, it. I hope, I hope that's rhetorical because I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I say most, you know, most people take it for granted, and you know, and you're like. You wish we were, like, funny. how's the internet work? Well, it's all saved on the cloud, right? What's the cloud? Well, it's just, it's just, it's what? It's, I mean, magic. physically, magic. It's, yeah, it is. It's magic. Well, that's uh, the, is it, is it Isaac Asimov or something like that who um, said any, any technology that's suitably advanced will appear as magic, you know? Because if, if you Clark, sorry, after C. Clark said it, yeah. Um, you know, because if you took if you took the internet back to even like frankly like you know Victorian times, you the you you know. I was talking to my friend. I was talking to my friend about this the other day actually, um, and we were saying you know talking about you know an iPhone ten or whatever you've got now. Um, he went, if you explain this to somebody in you know nineteen fifties, and you know got this kind of plastic thing and it fits into your pocket, and it, you know it, you can use it to phone people and send messages, and, and this you know you can send messages internationally and you can ask it questions and it'll tell you you can play music on it it takes cameras it's a video camera it's a map a compass they'd be going fuck off yeah. <laughs> wasn't it wasn't it the uh, the first iphone had a had contained more computer power than all the and there's like there was many 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 rooms of, of computers that launched for the NAS, uh apollo mission neil armstrong in space yeah the yeah, first apollo yeah. mission yeah yeah um you know, and, and I've seen photographs of these huge banks and banks and banks of computers, and that it was like you know, I don't know. An iPhone's more powerful. Yeah, well, that's well kilobytes of power, and you know, an iPhone's. Yeah. But things. If you think about the May fifty, sorry. No, you If you take the iPhone back to the uh, to the uh, to the to the fifties, you'd have to say, oh, and you can send emails and surf the net, and they'd be like, you then have to explain the internet to them. <laughs> And that yeah. is a concept that I can barely get my head around. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know. I know. No, it's weird. I was just going to say, even you're talking the 50s, I'm thinking 80s, because I remember playing as a kid yeah. in the woods, imagining I had a device that did all this. And <laughs> our kids are going to have them, my kids do, and they're going to go, it's just totally normal to them to, to do all that, which is just crazy. And then, and then you think your kids, Andy, if they're like kind of toddlerish age, in 10 years' time when they're teenagers... Where's it going to be at that stage when you think, you know, the iPhone's just over 10 years old and how yeah. much it's changed the world or, or smartphones generally. So in 10 years time, when your kids are my kids age, we're going to be left well behind, I'm afraid, mate. And that's why the speed part for the child is really interesting because, the, um, you know, you start looking at the technology, what's possible, and you realise, you know, we are going to have fully electric cars in the next 10, 15 years. We're going to have Electric, well, they're already electric, small electric passenger planes operating in Canada, but you know, we'll have electric 
Boeing 747s in the next 10 to 15 years, um, you know, there'll be, there'll be, because the whole kind of, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago about fossil fuels, I was like, there's no, until, until we run out, they're not going to stop it. But now, like, I think we actually are, because the technology's there, and most of these things are better. Like, the torque and the power and the acceleration on an electric car is better than a conventional car. And, yeah, I, I, I think, I'm like, right, actually, we, we will be, there'll be, there'll be no combustion engine cars on the British roads, unless you've got a special permission, because it's a classic car, something like that, you know. By, say, by 2030, both, say 2035, but I would suspect by 2030, in the next 10 years, you know, in our lifetime, we will see the world radically change, and I think for better. Um, yeah, I don't, well, say that, I mean, no, no generation will have seen as much technological change, I think, as ours. Um, mm. Because what will happen is our, our kids will see stuff that's built on, like the internet might prove it, but, but yeah, like we were around pre-internet and pre-mobile phone. Like, because like I said, I think the difference between 1990 and 2010, this 20-year span, is enormous. You know, bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> it's bonkers, crazy yeah. what we've all gone to. Talking about speed there, Andy, you're talking about the speed of the electric cars. Tell us how you managed to jump out of a plane with engines strapped to your feet to travel at 250 yeah. miles an hour. How did that situation <laughs> come around? Because so, that, that, that just sounds, we're, talking about, we're talking about internet sounding baffling. That sounds baffling to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, was, that was one of my better ideas. Um, <laughs> so, I. Got into speed skydiving uh, quite a few years ago. So just look, for people who know, speed skydiving is a, it's a very niche sport. A niche sport. In fact, I was meant to be. Um, I was meant to be competing for Team GB uh, this August in Russia at the, at the Skydiving World Cup, uh, but that's been cancelled because of COVID uh, nineteen, which is a bit gutten because you know you don't often get a chance to you know, compete for Team GB, especially you know when you're when you're in your forties. But anyway, I'm hoping that we keep the same team makeup for 2021, so I can. I can sneak back in there. But anyway, speed skydiving is it's the simplest sport in the world. You you jump out of a plane, and um, the person who goes fastest wins. Uh, you go head first. We found <laughs> found that the head head first is the is the most aerodynamic uh, position, so that gives you more speed. And um, I mean, I've done about two seven two two hundred and seventy eight miles an hour. But um, I've got my, my, my mate uh, Mikey Lovemore, who's who's the ex world champion and British champion. He's done about three twenty, and I think there's a lad from Sweden who's the current world record, world record holder. He's done uh, over over that three three thirty, three forty um, miles an hour. So it's yeah, it's pretty. It's, pretty, it's the fastest human powered sport in the world. Um, although gravity assisted. I can't, um, I, I, can't <laughs> I can't think. I can't think of something that I'm more interested in but less likely to do than jumping out of a plane and trying to hit 300 miles an hour. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, but I can't think of something. There's no amount of money that can get me to do that. I bet it is. <laughs> I bet it's an amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> I guarantee you there's, a, there's an amount of money. It may be quite high, but it's there. Um, yeah, so getting back to this, so when I, because I did this TV series for, for, for children's BBC called Beyond Bionic, where it was kind of, the idea was to look at wildlife and technology. So you took a really cool animal, talked about that cool animal, and then see if I could match it using technology. So the peregrine falcon is the fastest animal in the world. 
it does 252 miles an hour, uh, head down towards its prey. Think of a stoop, but it dies towards its prey. So um, I was like, right, let's let's try and beat that. And we thought the way to do it, but still and get involved with technology, was uh, and a friend of mine who works for like the UK space industry designed these prototype um, electric like t- jet engines. Um, which is my first sort of electric vehicle because we were looking at proper jet engines, but I realised we have to put a bladder of aviation fuel around my waist and sit and I have to heat them up in the plane and the, the drop zone and the pilot was like, "You're not turning on jet engines inside my aircraft. That's that's this that's the same." <laughs> and I was like, "Could we hang it? Could we hang it eventually of the plane and then turn the engines on, let them warm up, and I jump and then this thing about fuel, like having this big bag of fuel around your waist like this is not so anyway." If the guy from space, my mate from the space industry said, oh, well, I could design electric ones. It's like, okay, that's super, you know, it's, it's, well, much safer anyway. So, um, yeah, the idea we need to jet, jet turbines, so I just jumped out, I go head down, I start picking up some speed, and then I had a bike switch, because my hands are down by my sides to kind of guide me a little bit. So we have a switch that we normally use for operating cameras when we're in skydiving. Um, and it's very simple, you know, bike down for on, release for off, so you bite down and they, they kick in and give you an extra thrust. And, um, yeah, that's what we did. There you go. That's, that's how I ended up jumping out of a plane with them. Um, type jet engine cat. No, I'll, I'll stick to figuring out how to fight big cats. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> it was good fun. It was, I love yeah, that because skydive no, no, sky shoots are really, really pretty chill because... Like you got the team, you got the director, the cameras, and it's all quite more. Well, you know, it's a bit bustling, and it's this, that, next thing. But the only people up there were myself and my mate Mike, Mikey, Mike Lovemore, who I said before was the ex-world and UK speed skydiving champion. He's also my main skydiving partner, and he's a professional skydiving cameraman. So he's my and and I get I get more power than you normally would as a presenter to dictate who is filming it because actually you know, like. It's a very small mm. pool. I'm like, well, I, I know a guy to use. Or for cave diving, I always use a guy called Rich Stevenson. This is the guy I use. Um, he's my mate as well because we work together. And it's and it's it's safe. You want somebody you know is, can do the job. Yeah, yeah. Some yeah. CV, you know. Anyway, yeah. so it's me making the plane. And it's, you know, normally a, a jump plane's packed. You get like 20 bodies packed into a jump plane. We've got the whole plane to ourselves. Just me, him, the pilot. We're chilled out. We go up there. You know, open the door, look out. Hey, good to go, yeah, mate. Good to go, and then you know you go you go jumping with your mate. So I I enjoy skydiving shoots because the the press is on you. You got to do certain things, but um, but they're quite they're quite they're quite nice to do as well. So what 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 kind of because um, I I like I like I'm a car guy and I, you know I like F1 and racing and all that kind of stuff. So what if you're jumping out you know to get you know the maximum speed? Is this a lot to do with your suit? Is a you know, are you trying to get certain angles to create speed to get you know? Is that how yeah. you're it you're, What you wear has a bit of... Um, what, you, what, what you wear can create more or less drag, definitely. But it's all about body position. Um, so the, 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 the straighter you are, the less drag you create, the faster you'll go, the more you'll accelerate. Um, because you know, speed is mass over drag. I can't, I can't be any heavier. And it's against the rules to put on extra weight. So the only thing you do is, is reduce your drag. The problem is... The, the less drag you have, the less stable you are, less control you have. So it's a bit like trying to balance a pencil on its tip. You know what I mean? 
So mm. if you're going like that, now you might put your arms out to try and stabilize yourself, you know, but then you're creating drag. So when I first started, I found I could go faster wearing baggy trousers because although they were creating drag and slowing me down, they were acting a bit like the, the shuttlecock, you know, a shuttlecock or the feathers yeah. of an arrow. Okay, and, that makes sense, yeah. You know, I was, I was more stable, so I was keeping more upright, whereas if I was super slick, I was going faster, and then I'd, oh, I'd fall, I'd, I'd constantly fall off, like, you know, run, try to stay there. So um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a compromise between stability and, and, and speed, really. Yeah. Because if you, if you, if you go unstable, what tends to happen is you end up whoa, falling into that normal skydive position, which you kind of, you know, belly to your ground, you know, big, what you see people normally skydiving, that's nice and stable, and that's how your body wants to go, so you're trying to stop that, because as soon as you do that, you slam the anchors on, and the jump's over, pretty much. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, that's, that's the game. Yeah, I'm, st- I'm one of these people who, when I was kids, to be fair, I probably still do it, it's when you're driving along and it's windy, you put your hand out to try and figure yeah. out the angle that would create, I'm one of those guys, you're like, oh, oh this, this is the angle for a wing that you would use? That's that that fascinates me. Yeah, it's fascinating. You, you learn that straight away when you first start skydiving and you, you're falling like belly to earth like that in that sort of position. If you take your hands and do that, you, mm. you, you spin in place, you know, you spin uh, the other way. So that you issue you your hands exactly as you would do at the car window to turn yourself. Um, so, this must, so I'm assuming it must create like a low pressure for you to fall into or something. Is that how it would work? No, I think it's, it's deflection uh, right, okay. wind. So right, because okay. you're... You're, you're falling down, the relative wind is going up at you. So you're, mm-hmm. you're, 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 changed, you're, you're deflecting off the relative wind. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. We actually, we actually um, Ali, Ali has a friend who's an engineer for Red Bull Racing. Um, okay. But he, could, he couldn't come on for contractual things. He's not allowed to talk about anything F1, but I was one of the ones <laughs> I was really looking forward to. I would love to talk to him, but... Um, Right, so what, how did how did the, the the bond stuff come around about? Is that something you were approached to do, or did you apply for it? Or? No, that, it was it was you know life is peaks and troughs. Obviously, you, you put you put your um, put your happy face on Instagram, you know, because you you don't want to you know, some people do, and and I, I I do tend to try and give people a bit of realistic insight. But at the same token, I don't want to be on Instagram every day just whinging about stuff and bringing folk down, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't want to see it myself. So I don't I don't I don't, I don't do it to the people, but you know. Life peaks and troughs. So, you know, 2018, sorry, 17, great year. Uh, we did the Children's BBC series. That was when Wii OC, amazing. You know, became its own computer game, all that sort of stuff. Hey, 2018, a couple of projects fell through. A couple of commissions were supposed to be commissioned. There was a change at the head of the channel, one at Night or BBC, and, and therefore they just get, oh, we don't want that anymore. We've changed our mind, we want something else. Uh, and you... I've just out of work for a year, and it gets pretty stressful and pretty because you never know mm. if the phone's ever going to ring again. You know, and you're like Christ. And a friend of mine, Rich Stevenson, actually, the guy that I do a lot of the cave diving, deep diving film with the cameraman, mm-hmm. he said, I've got, "I've got a job in in uh, in February. In fact, it's, it's in February 2019. Still sitting around the bar, and I'm like, this is this is not great.' And he said, um, uh, yeah, I've got I've got a diving job, but it's you know it's not it's not presenting, it's not inspecting, it's 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 doing underwater construction and safety, um, on a film, but um, they need specialists and he's up there filming it. He said that, I, I said we need a guy who can use rebreathers, who can, who can dive under ice, who can spend like four or five hours a day 
in zero degree water so they can cope with that and it's like kick for it and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, they, they were like, okay, fair enough, who, who do you want? And they're like, well, this is the guy you want. So he called me up and said, you know, do, do you want the job? It's three weeks in Norway, working, and some of the other guys who were mates of mine is, you know, it's you know, up in a nice hotel, money's decent. I was like, mate, you know what? 100%, that, that's much appreciated. I'll, I'll take that, thanks very much. At which point he could then say, oh, by the way, it's for Bond. Wow, how cool is that? Yes, that's really awesome. <laughs> now, I'd been looking at doing, obviously I've been doing sort of what you could call stunts for, for documentaries, sort of real life stunts, if you will, you know, genuinely mm. doing the things you're doing for the last 10 years. And I've been looking at getting doing more, um, you know, film stunt work, but it's quite a hard industry to sort of break into, or it seems that way from the outside, anyway, like everything else. So, um, at, uh, uh, you know, up in Norway, I thought, and there's a the stunt's going on, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to speak to the, the sort of the dive supervisor, who he does a lot of, he's the dive supervisor for loads of films between all the bonds. Um, uh, so I might just we chat with him to see if they ever need any like specialist underwater kind of stunt guys. But before that happened, he approached me because I think he'd heard about the skydiving and the climbing and all that stuff. I do free diving and what have you. He said, "Have you never, never thought about getting into into stunts?" I was like, "Well, actually, it's a conversation I was going to hope to have with you towards the end of the job." And he went, "All right, leave it with me." Next thing you know, the stunt coordinator, who's now a mate, and we come a really good mate of mine. Um, the stunt coordinator spoke to me the next day. And uh, and said, all right, you know, leave it with me. And I hear that in TV all the time. It's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but um, like, literally, we did Norway. I got a phone call. Could you come and do some some training with, uh, you know, some, some just some free diving and diving training with uh, with the, some of the, the cast? And, yeah, brilliant. That was a day, another day like that. And then, okay, do you want to um, do you want to come to Jamaica as the underwater stunt specialist? Uh, we're, we're leaving. We're leaving effectively tomorrow. Can you be at, can you be at Stars at the airport tomorrow when you just fly to Jamaica for a month and be the, the underwater stunt specialist? Like, yep, I'm in. And then from there, because there was climbing stuff and there was there's sort of military stunts as well, I ended up just staying on the I ended up doing basically the whole year on uh, on on Bond as uh, stuntman, and that was and that was that, and it was. Uh, it was exactly as cool as you think it is. I've got to say, sounds, sounds cool. Yeah, it was. It sounds cool. Yeah. I mean, people think, oh yeah. I bet the reality. No, the reality was actually brilliant. It was exactly as cool. I think. But what what genuinely what made it was the people. Um, now I'm sure not every film's like this, but I think because Bond is is a family business, it's, it's been in the family for well since it started, and it's the same mm. people. Like the the head of special effects is a lovely, lovely bloke, but he's been the head of special effects. I think. The last like sixteen bonds, something like that. He, he did. I think he did Roger Moore's last one, and he did the Timothy Dalton ones. He did all the Peter Morrison ones, and now Daniel Craig ones. So he's been the head of special. So you know, it's a family thing, mm. and it's also because it's Bond. They can pick and choose who they hire. So they don't. If if somebody's yeah. a dick, they don't hire dicks. And the again, the, the stunt team were just because I I I, didn't, I knew no one when I got on that plane in uh, in Stansted, and by the time we landed, like we're all just really good mates just a, a very super motivated super capable but just really nice people as well who are just happy mm. to be doing their job and i can appreciate what what they've got yeah. so um yeah it was uh, make a make a huge difference if you if you know if you're surrounded by nice people who are, who are just friendly and welcoming it makes so much a difference to, to anything doesn't matter what you're doing 
I, I do say this that I think you, the ha- happiness is dictated. Well, ninety percent of your happiness is dictated by the people you surround yourself with. Yeah, hundred you percent. Know? And it, you, I would rather if if you if you go and do, you know, take for example in, in, in the, the the kind of stunt analogy. So, working on a cheap TV series for minimal money with your mates. You're still gonna have. You're still gonna want to go to work. You're still gonna. You're still gonna be happy. You're still gonna have a good time. You know, mm. versus working on the next big blockbuster for loads of money with just a bunch of absolute dicks. You know, you're gonna mm. loathe every single day. Now you might be making more money, but I'll tell you what. If it's a year long job, it's gonna cripple you. You know, it's just not worth yeah. it. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. Uh, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, you know, I thought. You know, I always think it doesn't matter <clears throat> whatever happened. Yeah, I'm happiest if I was. On the island sky, climbing a Monroe in a nice weather, going, this is all right. You know, I, I, I couldn't. You know, when you, I know people who, you know, you, you kind of get into working offshore at an early age. You know, and, and they can't ever give that, you know, big money up. And then, but you know, they've got all these nice things and nice cars and nice houses. You go, yeah, that's cool. But you know, I get to, you know, we do jujitsu, so you know, we get to seven o'clock in the morning. We go train with our friends, try and strangle each other, and then you know sit and have a blather and I could go and do things at night and that's way more valuable to me than, than yeah. money. You know what I mean? It's Well, it's, it's um, you know, I'll say like, I said to a mate years ago, no one has an epiphany when things are going well. Like, this doesn't happen. It, you need the troughs in order to get to the peaks and appreciate those peaks, you know. We're not meant to be happy all the time, but it's not. Life is peaks and troughs. It's bad times and good times. Yeah. But I t- you tend to learn the best lessons during the bad times. And mm. one thing for me is, is, you know, I think some people are ch- chasing what they think is success, and it's the wrong thing for them. You know, these days success is is it's either money, power, or fame. Now, to be fair, I'm not saying that's wrong. If if making loads of money makes you happy, crack on, do that. If being really famous makes you happy, by all means, crack on and do that. But 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 with that shadow of a doubt, the happiest man in the room wins. That's who wins. Mm. Yeah. And if, however you've got there, that's fine. But you know, if you're famous and rich and miserable, I'm afraid you lose. You, you do lose. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people in that situation. You know, like I say, a lot of guys who they, they get used to making money, and it, you know, it's not. That's not something that they want to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just not something. Where 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 I stay, um, in Fife, I get to go up to Loch Leven, You know, um, can Ross, yeah, um, regularly and watch sunset. And there's nothing cooler to me than just going up there and watching the sunset, and then coming home and going. Life's pretty good. I couldn't think of anything worse than being, you know, offshore or something, making loads of money, but sitting in a cabin, miserable. You know, as I say, that that I don't, I don't, I don't say folk, or you know, making money won't make you happy. Some people love making money. They like like the stuff they want to break. That's that's not all. It's like people being famous or want to be powerful politicians. Again, that's what. But you, but what I think people do wrong is they often pick the wrong thing, thinking that that will make them happy, and it doesn't. And they don't like twenty years of doing it and being miserable. Like, mate, it's clear that we can be happy. Stop, stop doing it. So, yeah, f- find what makes you happy and do that. Because I say, it doesn't it doesn't matter who's the most famous person, the most powerful person, the most rich person in the room. It's the happiest person in the room that wins. Yeah, yeah. So what? Um, so the military stuff, uh, Andy. Was that that was what was that underwater bomb disposal? Is that what? I did all sorts. So yeah, I run the un- army's underwater bomb disposal team. Uh, the Navy go well. The Army's only got one underwater bomb disposal team because we take care of stuff basically from the high water mark mm. and up. It's basically fresh water, so lakes, rivers, canals, sewers, unfortunately. Um, 
Uh, I was part of the Maritime Terrorist Unit uh, for a few years and did airborne bomb disposal. Um, it was a sort of paratrooper and bomb disposal officer. Uh, yeah, did tours, usual places, Bosnia. I wondered, I, I wondered that point because I'm, I'm a Navy brat. My old man was 22 years in the Royal Navy. Um, and I know a lot of EOD and CD boys from that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. And I genuinely, when I saw your thing and, and saw Army Underwater, that part of my brain that's Royal Navy just went, Army Underwater? That's not real. It's the Navy that do the underwater. It's the CD boys, the EOD boys that do it. Yeah, that's, they, that's, that's, that's the difference. Yeah, because, you know, we... Because they, they deploy from ships. And they are, they are set up to deploy from ships. Whereas yeah. we are set up to deploy from land rovers if we have to, or even, you know, part of the Army course. I mean, in typical fashion, the Army dive course that's run at the same place the Navy course is, it's like six weeks long, and it's five and a half weeks of fizz, you know, training, and, and a couple of days of diving, it's just all getting beasted around the lake, carrying, like, twin sets of dive gear. And all, all the Navy guys look at you going, do you, not, do you not do any diving on your dive course? You just do press-up <laughs> and runs. Um <laughs> Because you know we we do stuff like we did we did searches in in the sewers in Basra or maybe you're searching rivers for stuff like foreign put for mines or you're searching lakes just and you know and and you hope you can drive a wagon up there but sometimes you can't sometimes you might have to hunt the kit in the last little bit so it's um yeah, yeah it's a different you know it'd be, it'd be great if you could deploy from shit I think it's it's I'd love to be a, a Navy EOD diver. It's just uh, so much easier. <laughs> it, sounds, it, sounds, it sounds to me like it'd be a little bit too easy for you. Um, <laughs> the other thing is, I, I get seasick. Um, not all the time. It's a slight problem. Yeah, not all the time. <laughs> it's why, you know, um, the the like I don't do a huge amount of offshore wreck diving. If I do, it's like, when's going to be calm weather? Um, <laughs> some, some days I'm fine, but some days I'm, I'm pretty bad. <laughs> why people go you know it's one of the big advantages of cave diving cave diving is normally done you know on no one gets seasick cave diving mm. <laughs> i remember talk, just talking about enjoying your job and like stressfuls and stuff i remember talking to two of the boys that that were uh, good friends my dad that were eod's and i remember saying to when i got about maybe 15 16 just as my dad was coming out i remember speaking to them and having a bit more understanding of what they do for a job and saying it must be the most stressful job in the world being an eod guy and they said it's not actually because there's only ever two outcomes. We either get it right or we die. So where's the stress? <laughs> and do you know when you're just like, okay, okay, I can. And you find that, you know, I've said it before and people look at me like, that's just rubbish, you know. And I see this thing and go, oh, well, it must be, must be bomb disposal. Oh, my God. And you go, no, it's quite zen, actually. And it yeah. is because it's a bomb disposal officer. Normally, you have a lower, you're either a junior officer, like a second lieutenant or lieutenant, maybe a captain. Or you're a senior NCO, a junior sort of senior NCO, so you're a sergeant or a staff sergeant. That you know, it's a fairly junior level. And so in Iraq, you are still the subject matter and therefore the commander on site. So you'll have a major of the infantry, and you'll deploy them out to. You'll be phoning up the head of basically the RAF for the whole of southern Iraq to say, "I want a no-fly zone over this area." You know, you're punching well above your weight. You got you try to juggle a million different balls to get set up, and then finally. You might do your recce, you tell your team to prep your kit, and then within the cordon, no one's allowed but you. And you don't take any comms kit down there, so no one can contact you because it would you know, might set the device off. So once you enter the bubble, do the old long walk. You're in your own little world. So you're like, all this, all this stuff going on and all this, and you step into the zone and you're like, don't... Oh, thank God for that. Right. 
Oh, and it's quite zen. And so you wandered down, and it was somebody else that said what you were talking about there. He, he, a mate of mine, put it very well. He went, as far as you're concerned, everything is always going to be going well. <laughs> yeah. Because, well, the second, because the second it stops going well, you're not going to know about it, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's we've had, we've had a few guys like named in that in minefields with anti-personnel, mine was a small stuff. So yeah. it's why we used to... Um, like dealing with World War Two stuff, for example, in you know places like London, um, the old German bombs were like a thousand pound bombs, a five hundred kilos of explosives. You wouldn't wear people go, why weren't you wearing a bomb suit? Well, kind of that. You know, yeah. you'd be down there like in, in short sleeve, you know, a t-shirt and your combat trousers, and that's it. Yeah, and you'd be sat on the bomb, you straddling it like a horse, dealing with the fuse at the front. People go, that's that's reckless, mate. It's a five hundred kilos of explosive. If this yeah. thing goes off, you know. I could be wearing a tank and it's not going to make a difference, you know, so uh, yeah. I might as well be comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, I was interested when I saw that. I did wonder how the army underwater worked when um, yeah. I just I just assume CDs and cleanest divers and EOD boys for the Navy. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah, fresh water. So what's um, what, what is, it, is, it, is there anything else that you have go, moving forward that you, you really want to, to try or study or, or get into? Is, it, is there anything else in this? Because you've well, not got quite enough already. I know, I, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the one problem is I do have... It's, it's hard to maintain a decent level. At, I, 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 I my diving's always up there, but like my free diving peaks and wings, my climbing peaks and wings, my skydiving peaks and wings. So my diving's always good, like cave and, and technical diving stuff, but... Of the other, I, mean, I used to do a lot of sea kayaking, but you, you can't, you can only maintain a high level of, I'd say, two things at once, and then everything else has to drop down and they change depending on the priority. But um, fully charged, I have a bit more BBC stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to do more stunt stuff. We've got a couple of films maybe happening this year, depending on what comes with COVID. Um, and and I'm loving that. It's just because it's, it's a really, it's a lovely environment to work with and really nice people. Um, so for that, I've I've I used to do a bit of martial arts as a kid, but I've taken that back up. So that's I'm okay. studying martial arts again, and uh, and I did a little bit of gymnastics when I was a kid as well. So again, I'm getting back into that for uh, for the stunt stuff. So yeah, I'm, which is which is the nice thing about lockdown. I'm just training a lot, like I'm, yeah. fit, I'm training yeah. every like every morning, like physical training in the gym, and then I'm doing at least an hour in the afternoon either free diving training, like breathe breath hold stuff out of the water or I'm doing martial arts stuff or I'm doing gymnastic stuff. So um yeah, it's it's um it's sometimes you think, yeah, just I need a day off, but um <laughs> yeah, a bit relentless. But yeah, I can imagine. So uh, what's the what's the what kind of martial arts are you doing? What's the... uh Taekwondo is what I'm doing. Oh okay. Um, cool. Yeah, I used to do Taekwondo, which most people, there's like five Taquito clubs in the world. They're all in Scotland, actually. Taze oh, okay. Institute. I think there's one in Aberdeen, a couple in Glasgow. So there's a couple, one in Dundee, one in Edinburgh. But yeah, so it's quite a to do that. But that's it's very similar to, to Taekwondo because it's a Korean. I think it was born from Taekwondo. So plus, my, mm. there's a local club to me that are really good. And what what we managed to do is, even before COVID, when I was the, towards the end of Bond last year and I was in Italy. I was doing remote one-to-one, basically Zoom, wasn't Zoom, we're using uh, Skype, I think it was, but to do one-to-ones with my instructor. So actually when All COVID right. kicked in, I was like, well, that's fine, we've done it before. So we've been training kind of over the, over the internet like that. So that's so mm. even when I'm away, I can still train and, and kind of still hit my gradients, which is nice. 
Yeah. Yeah, less so with the gymnastics, because again, it was really handy as well, just down in the, the town near me, there's this big gymnastics centre, but uh, they've obviously had to close for uh, yeah. time being. Gymnastics is one of those things where I, I, I really wish that I could um, spend some more time trying to do it. It's some, one of those things that seems so like outrageously strong. You know, it's, yeah. the guys just seem crazy strong, crazy flexible. It just seems madness. That's my problem is flexibility. You know, too many mm. the force is very much you rock up and then no warm up. You, you rock up, you stick a pack in your, and you're wearing boots. You run up a mountain, you run back down the mountain, and then you just go for a beer, like this idea of stretching or, you know, mobility work is like, what? So I, I'm, I, um, at, I'm yeah. at the stage in life now when I can't do anything without a solid bit of stretching. I, I, need, I need to do some warming up now or nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Nothing at all. <laughs> um, are you are you okay for, for time, Andy? Are you... uh, I'm going to put the kids to bed actually in about oh, five or ten minutes time. So I was going to say, yeah, we've gone over the hours so we're Appreciate your, your time and we'll wait. You go on anything you want to add, Chris, just before we hang up? Oh, did that freeze you? I was just saying anything you want to add on? Uh, myself, uh, yeah, uh, no, not not. I mean, it's been, it's been a good chat. Uh, you know, I'll um, if it's still going a year's time, I'll, I'll pop back and give you an update. We can uh. Just, just Absolutely, we'd love that. Um, Beautiful. Um, um, if anyone's looking for you on social media and that, where can they find oh, you? Uh, um, Andy Torbett. Uh, website is Andy Torbett.com. I think on Instagram, I'm Andy Torbett. Uh, I wouldn't bother. Or, or, I've not been on Twitter for years, so I think I'm still on there, but I wouldn't bother following me on Instagram. Instagram's probably the best way to do it. And yeah. um, apart from that, uh, yeah, I hope everybody's doing all right and, and, and safe up in Scotland. My mum's been, mom's still in Aberdeen, so she's been keeping me posted on, on how things are developing there. But I think it's pretty much the same across the country. Although yeah. I think probably the safest place to be right now is probably, you know, the the Isle of Harris or something like that. <laughs> you know? Aye, somewhere up in the west, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but no, thanks well, uh, very much. Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that, Andy. Thanks for taking the time. It was fantastic. Yes, guys. Thank you. Take care. Good, thanks. Oh, I should just stop recording now. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.